I want to encourage you that after City is completed, that maybe you would get together, take that person out to lunch if they're newer to Charlottesville and new to City Church, and just kind of build some relational connection there. So um, listen, before we jump into the teaching that's following the Olympic theme, the theme of the Olympics, I want us to do something that we do every year, and it's this. If you are here and for your job, you're involved with education, whether it's at UVA, PVCC, high school, elementary school, you're part of administration, any of you that are here, that that's what you do for a job, I want you to stand right now in the auditorium because we're going to pray for you. So if you're involved in education, I want you to remain standing. What we know is that the UVA students are back, uh, uh, under kind of the elementary, high school uh, teachers are going to be going, their students are coming back in this week. And we really want to pray for you that God will bless you. What you do, you are the unsung heroes of our culture. How many of you know that this is true? It's absolutely true. And so if you can remain standing, uh, we're going to pray for you. Again, whether you're an admin, you actually teach, whatever it is, we want to pray for you as uh, you step into this week and the next couple of weeks. I know one of the friends of mine that serves on the worship team was just saying how she really wanted prayer. There have been some changes, things are going to be a little bit different, and that can create a little anxiety as you step in. Does that make sense to all of us? So can, do you mind praying with me as we pray for these people? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the call of our lives. Thank you that it's not just to ministry that you call us, but you call us to serve in ways that are often unseen and unheard. But God, I believe that every person that's standing here in this moment is your hands and your feet, that they carry with them the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. I pray as they step in and begin to serve in the different academic institutions in and around Charlottesville that you will bless them, that you will cover them, give them wisdom as they teach, give them a heart of patience. Lord, help them to see the, the students and the other people they work with through your eyes. God, give every single person that's standing an opportunity to share the hope that they have found in you to a soul that needs it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Again, let's give them a hand as they're seated. Thank you guys so much for what you do. And now as we step into this teaching series that's still following the Olympics, how many of you have enjoyed watching the Olympic sports? Wow. You're overly enthusiastic, aren't you, about the Olympics? I found myself last night, a group of us gathered together, and I was at a friend's house, and we were watching, I think it was the 15,000-meter race. 10,000, thank you, it shows how much I know. Anyway, I was excited, and the U.S. runner led pretty much the entire race, and I don't know how something so boring as running could become so excited. We were screaming and yelling and cheering, and the guy won. We're high-fiving each other, and we don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. We know nothing about the guy, but we were pretty involved. And, and then there's this momentary inspiration of the Olympics. In my life, it's very momentary. You watch these incredible athletes, and you think, I should really go do something like that. <laughs> you ever do that like I am, and then you're pick up the clicker, you go, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. But one of the things I, I did involved with the Olympics is I looked up what are the common things about Olympic athletes before we kind of hit the topic for today. And when I looked them up, there were actually websites that talked about this, and here were the things that were mentioned. It was fascinating, these high-level athletes. Here's what they, they, they wrote about, trust your training Always have a positive attitude. Control your anxiety. Learn how to do that. Eat well. 
And always know you did not get to the Olympics alone. It didn't happen alone. And then the last thing that all of these athletes talked about was the importance of setting goals. That they had set goals. And that's how they got their times down, or they jumped higher, or they went faster, or whatever it is. They lifted more weight. They had set specific goals, and they had followed through with those. And so that was, interestingly enough, the most common thing among all high-level athletes that they had been setting goals and following through with the goals, and they had people that held them accountable to their goals. And I thought that was interesting that they had all of this sort of in common, but that was the one specific thing. Now, as we talk about the Olympics, what I want to talk about this morning is something that's common to every follower of Jesus. City Church has a simple vision, simple. It's this, calling people to follow Jesus and serve others. That's what City Church is all about, calling people to follow Jesus and to serve others. Well, as followers of Jesus, there's something that we have incredibly in common, and that is this, forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's something that all of us have in common. Now, how I want us to proceed this morning is to picture that forgiveness is one of the high hurdles that we have to jump over if we're going to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to get Rob Archer to come on out and help me this morning. Rob was actually a high hurdler at the University of Virginia. He was a track star there. Let's give it up for Rob as he comes out. And so what I want to show you is 42 inches. That's the height of the high hurdles. Look how high this is. Anyone want to take a run at this thing and, and jump it? It's a, it's, there's low hurdles and high hurdles, am I right? Low hurdles are for the ladies. <laughs> there's intermediate hurdles for 400 meters, but that's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you ran high hurdles at the University of Virginia. Sure. Were you good? Not great. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Does your mom think you were great? Yes. Yes, yes. So, um, and so do my kids. And your kids do too. And I do too. And you do too. Okay, we finally <laughs> came around to that. Um, tell us a little bit about running high hurdles. How many hurdles are there? What distance do you run? All of that stuff. So in the men's high hurdles, it's 110 meters. The hurdles are 10 meters apart. And um, the hurdles are 42 inches high. Uh, did anybody watch the hurdles? Anybody see yes. the hurdles? How many so, of so you the, saw that? Yeah. So the women run 100 meters, and the hurdles are a little bit lower, but it is a, an event of rhythm and concentration. And that's what it takes to do well, is rhythm and concentration. concentration. And a little bit of speed, maybe a little flexibility, and no fear. And no fear. So have you ever run and hit a hurdle while you were racing? Several times. What happens when you hit a hurdle and you don't clear it? Well, let's just say that the hurdles are an event in which no other mistake compounds as greatly as it does in any other track and field event. So if you make a mistake, you will probably end up falling down. So oftentimes you'll see someone who's fallen, but it's happened several hurdles before when you get sort of off kilter. Does that make sense? Yeah. Say yes. Yeah. That makes sense, Rob. Is there, um, what was your best time ever in the high hurdles? 1379. 1379. Yeah. So that's 13.79 seconds. Seconds. Yeah. And what's the world record? 12.8. 12.8. Okay, so that's amazing, right? And I think that the uh, uh, Olympic record um, was 12, almost 12.9. I think I looked that up this morning. That's the Olympic record. And so how far can an athlete going that speed actually clear in one second? So we're trying to figure out how far you'd be behind the oh. world record holder if you were uh, running like two different races. It was actually the same amount of distance as the, the winner, the, the uh, Jamaican champion, and the last place finisher. So it was, you know, it'd like, be enough. Like Y'all would be feet. cheering for me because I go to City Church. We would have cheered for you, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. So um, uh, anything else that comes to mind about the high hurdles? Just it's about concentration. It's about rhythm. And uh, as you said earlier, trusting your training is a big deal because you actually do have to train so that the muscle memory is there so that you don't think about what's happening when you're actually performing. Good deal. Let's give it up for Rob. Oh, Rob, Rob, I have one question. Was it you or your wife that holds the world record okay, or so, did? So Sandy has a world, had a world record, and we still actually have a sprint record from way back in the middle days. school. No, not no, almost it was middle actually. school. Yeah. Okay, so your wife. So was, Sandy's yeah, Sandy's the two-time All-American in our family. So good deal. Thank you, Rob. God bless you, buddy. So. What we've done at City is we have started, we, we first covered wrestling. We had Coach Garland come up here and he talked about wrestling and we looked at Jacob as he wrestled with God. Last week what we looked at was the marathon, long distance running, and Janice came up here and helped with that because Lord knows I've never run a marathon and never planned to. 26.2 miles is how far a marathon is. And after church uh, last Sunday, I had everyone that had run a marathon or a half marathon or anywhere from like a 5K on up stand. And after the service, uh, a family came up to me and said, our dad skipped church today, but he's a marathon runner. Is that guy here this morning at City? <laughs> so I want you to stand. How many marathons have you run? He's run 41 marathons. Woo! You can be seated. Thank you very much. So I just had to give you that shout out because your, your kids said that you actually skipped church and it had something to do with the judgment of God or something because you weren't here. And I figured if you, do you have any answer for that? You want, okay, good deal. Congratulations on 41 So what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about the high hurdle of faith, the high hurdle of faith. What I want to say at the outset is this, if you don't clear this hurdle, faith will not work. It's not going to work. And so if you would notice along with me that there's this sort of common theme throughout our Christian lives, and if you're checking out faith, this is something to really clue in on this morning. The idea, if you're looking at the 42-inch high hurdle, this is something, and it's known in Scripture as forgiveness, that all of us have to contend with if we're going to have a Christian life. And in looking at the high hurdle, one of the things that I know is that as goal setting is common to all high-level athletes, forgiveness is something that's common to every person of faith. And so what I would like for us to do, we're going to begin by reading out loud the Lord's Prayer that is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. So if we can put that up on the screen, this is the Lord's Prayer. The disciples come to Jesus, say, teach us to pray, and here's what he said to pray. Let's begin with the Our Father. Can we say it out loud together? Are we ready? Yes. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when you read that prayer, and I know people that can quote that prayer, that would trade a dead rat for God. No joke. They don't want God in their lives. They don't want anything to do with God. But they can quote that prayer from memory. And what's interesting to me is that right after that prayer is done, lead us not into temptation. Forgive our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, then we have the following, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, here's what Jesus says. Verse just following the Lord's Prayer. 
For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What a high hurdle. What a high hurdle. And the first hurdle to cover with forgiveness is this. Forgiveness, if you could put it back up on the screen, forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of God. It's the currency of the kingdom. It's what makes the kingdom work. How could it be that we would pray the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, this is how you pray, and when you're done praying that prayer, there's a little bit of commentary at the end. Right after, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. And then it says, if you forgive people, God will forgive you. Why? It's the currency of the kingdom. It's how this works. When you think about currency of the kingdom, think about how essential currency is. There's no transaction without currency. I had an experience not all that long ago where I was traveling to Europe and I was involved with some church leadership training. And it just so happened that before I was going, I stopped by the bank and took out what little money I had left. So I'm going to go on a trip. I was sharing with the teller and she said to me, oh, no kidding, you're going? I said, yeah, I am. She said, are you going to use your bank credit card? And I said, well, that's kind of the plan. I've got some cash, but... She said, whoa, wait a minute, you better call the bank and let them know. And she said, as a matter of fact, and she took me over to a banker. I sat down with him. He said, Pete, where are you going? I told him. He actually punched in a bunch of stuff with my credit card and let them know that I would be traveling in Europe. And he said, if you don't do that, when you get to Europe, the first time you swipe your card, they're going to shut it off. I said, for real? He said, yeah, they're just going to shut it off. They assume someone stole it, and they have it over in Europe, and they're going to be running it. And I just had this vision of me being in Europe, and my credit card wouldn't work at all. And then you go, you start thinking about becoming impoverished and stealing chickens from farmers around the hillside of Germany and trying to figure out how I'm going to survive. You go into survival mode. But look. No currency, you're in trouble, big trouble. And the currency of the kingdom of God is forgiveness. And Jesus teaches us that in the Lord's Prayer. And then following that gives us this profound commentary. In order to be forgiven, we must be willing to forgive others because that is the currency of the kingdom. To not forgive means there's a short circuit and the kingdom of God does not work. It's about forgiveness. Another illustration could be similar to this. Because I know some of you are already doing the mental math. You're sitting there going, uh-oh. Here we go with forgiveness. Another illustration would be simply this. Your car won't work without gasoline. It won't. And you know, someone may get a little bit stubborn and say, you know what? I know how expensive gas is. What I'm going to do is put water in my car. Hey, it comes out of a hose. It's liquid. Thank God it's so much less expensive than gasoline. Don't want to use gas. So I'm just going to stick the hose in my car and just fill her up. Cost me about four cents. You think about how crazy that is. I'm just going to tell you. The Christian life works because of forgiveness. It does. So the first hurdle that we cross is the hurdle where we understand that forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom. I want to say one quick word to a certain subset of people that are here this morning. We've had a lot of weddings at City this summer. What I want to say to you newlyweds, understand that the currency of the kingdom is forgiveness. And when you step into your marriage, you've got to understand this, that forgiveness is so absolutely critical. Well, let me qualify it by saying this. 
Forgiveness is not when you stuff in your gut and you shove down the stuff that's bugging you. That's not forgiveness. That's avoidance. And it's what you might want to call packing the dynamite down. It's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you identify what it is and say, because I love you, I'm going to forgive you. And we're going to work together to do this thing different. The next high hurdle is once you understand that forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom, the next high hurdle is accepting God's forgiveness for yourself. If forgiveness is the currency of God's kingdom, then accepting forgiveness personally becomes so critical. There are two passages of Scripture that I would like put up on the screen. Romans 5.8 tells us this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you are out there doing the worst sin that you could ever imagine, you find yourself involved with stuff that you never, ever would have dreamt that you were involved with. Know this, that while you were sinning, Christ died for you. And the next verse is so critical. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me say this very carefully. Forgiving yourself is the wrong starting point. How can you forgive yourself? It makes no sense to me. That's a psychological loop. Go sin, Pete, you're forgiven. Go sin again, Pete, you're forgiven. How crazy is that? But when I recognize what sin does, and I recognize that it breaks relationship with God and relationship with people, when I bring it to the God of all relationship and I understand that Christ died for my sins, and I understand that Scripture says if I confess my sin, He is faithful and just. He will forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I need to be clean by God. I cannot scrub myself clean. It's how it works. But when I look at this, I know exactly what's going to happen. Because I've been here. When you think about God forgiving you, the first thing that happens is the enemy of your soul is going to come and whisper in your ear, and here's what he'll say. Listen, it cannot be this easy. It can't be this easy. It cannot be that forgiveness is a gift through Christ to you. And the enemy will come and say, that's too easy. It must be more complicated than that. Let me tell you, it's not. When you and I come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me, and I confess my sin, he cleanses me. The next thing I can promise will happen is that if the voice of the enemy of your soul is somehow quenched and silenced, the next thing that will happen is your flesh will rise up because your flesh is what got you to sin to begin with. And your flesh will say this, Pay it back. Pay it back. Forgiveness isn't a gift. You've got to pay it back. You've got to work. You've got to stack the scales so that now you're okay with God. That's what the flesh is going to say. Pay it back. What I want to tell you is that's as ludicrous as going to a restaurant. And when you're in the restaurant, someone comes in that knows you and they pay the check for you. And when the check has been paid for you because it's a gift, the waiter or waitress comes to you and says, hey, listen, by the way, this is a suggestion. Pastor Pete, someone from your church is eating in the restaurant on the other side of the restaurant, and they have paid your bill in full. 
The flesh says, why didn't you order lobster? <laughs> but you're sitting there, and the waiter or waitress comes up and says, hey, Pete, bill's paid. Who paid it? They walked out already. Okay? And then I go to the cashier, and I argue. I want to pay the bill. Cashier says, zero balance. Oh, no, 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 I've got to pay the bill. You don't understand. They're like, look, if you're dumb enough to pay twice, help yourself. See how crazy that is? The flesh says you got to pay. It's not how it works. It's a gift. It's the gift of God through Christ. And then the last thing you're going to hear is your spirit saying, take it. It's the deal of a lifetime. Your spirit's going to say, I'm dying over here. Please say yes to the forgiveness of Jesus. Please say yes. Because the spirit has been strangled and mutilated and beaten down. And the spirit knows, and some of you sitting here know, you need this forgiveness because your spirit is so thirsty for the grace and the love of God through Christ. That's the second hurdle. The third hurdle for forgiveness is what I call Jesus' call to forgive. Jesus' call to forgive. That's the third hurdle. Can we put it up on the screen? Here's what Jesus says to you and to me. He writes or says, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you and say, I repent, you must forgive them. Why? Forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of God. And the apostles say to the Lord, what do they say? Increase our faith. They don't say increase our faith when they approach a demon-possessed person. They don't say increase our faith when they come to a shriveled-up limb. It's when Jesus sets out how the kingdom of God works, and he says seven times in one day, someone comes up, steals a French fry. Oh, forgive me. You're forgiven. Come back, take another French fry. You're forgiven. Come back, take another one. Sounds like I'm eating a meal with my teenage kids. Take that. Forgiven, repent, forgiven, repent. But if you understand the importance of forgiveness in the kingdom, you'll clearly get it. But please understand, Jesus' call to forgive flies in the face of everything that we as human beings want to move towards. Everything. Let me give you some thoughts that happen. I've come to the point where I've gotten over the first hurdle. It's the economy. I know. It's how it works. It's the currency of the kingdom of God. I recognize that. Now I've accepted Christ's forgiveness for me. And then Jesus says this to me as his follower. The first thing I think about is this. Man, if I forgive people, I'm going to look really weak. I'm going to look weak. You know, there's an entire New Testament book. It's very brief. It's the book of Philemon. In the book of Philemon, this tiny little book in the Newer Testament, is the story of the Apostle Paul writing to a slave owner by the name of Philemon. His slave named Onesimus has run away. And Onesimus somehow meets Paul, and Paul leads him to Jesus. Well, Philemon is a Christian. Now Onesimus is a Christian. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon. He puts it in the hand of Onesimus and says, take this to your master. Because you see in Roman times, if you had a slave that ran away, you'd kill him in front of all the other slaves. Because that would teach him a lesson. Yet Paul says, there's a better way to live life. It's to forgive. And so Paul sends this letter back to Philemon. And says, please receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. 
not a runaway slave. And believe me, when Philemon read that letter, here's what he knows. Everyone knew Onesimus ran away. When he forgives him, he's going to look weak. What's going to happen? What if all the other slaves run away? I'm going to look weak in the midst of this. And if you'll notice in the Newer Testament how many times the authorities would grab a Christian, pull them in, question them, find nothing against them, and then they would beat them and throw them in the street. It's a culture where you've got to appear strong. And Jesus shows up and says, forgive. Not only that, if you become a forgiving person, I will promise you that there will be people next to you that will say, I wouldn't forgive. I wouldn't do that to save my life. And if you don't forgive them, now you've got them right where you want them. You've got them. There's other people that will say if you're a forgiving person that you're condoning sin, that you're soft on sin. Because somehow you should have slapped them and kicked them out and beaten them up. But Jesus shows up and says, let's do life differently. Let's do it like the kingdom of God. And as in the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that the kingdom of heaven would invade earth because we desperately need it. We need the kingdom of heaven here. And so when you look at what Jesus calls us to, and you recognize that forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom, that we receive it for ourselves, and then Christ calls us to forgive. As we follow Jesus, we face the reality that God wants us to use this currency as often as we can. There's an incredible story in the Older Testament that I'm going to conclude with. It's a story in the Older Testament, and it covers Genesis chapter 37 all the way to chapter 51. You may not have ever read it. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it. Don't read it now. Please listen. But we're going to take a look at Joseph. Two weeks ago, we took a look at Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He had 11 other sons. Joseph was his 12th. He favored him. And as always, when there's dysfunction like that, things tend to go sideways. At the age of 17, Joseph had two dreams. And in the dreams, he dreamt that God had given him, they were God-given dreams. He was 17 years old, and in the dreams, he recognized that his 11 brothers and his parents would actually become subservient to him. He had two of those dreams. And like an ill-advised teenager, he told his brothers, hey guys, I had this awesome dream last night. The dream is, someday you're going to serve me. Next day he shows up, had another dream from God. It's awesome. You guys, all of you, and mom and dad, going to serve me. Because his dad was dysfunctional, and loved him more than the other brothers, he didn't really say much to him about it. And then one day, Joseph goes out into the field to check up on his brothers at his dad's bidding, and his brothers grab a hold of him, and they decide they're going to kill him. What ends up happening is two of the brothers speak up and say, no, 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 don't kill him, don't kill him, we don't want that on our conscience, let's just leave him in a cistern. So they throw him into a dry well, and they just leave him there. And then one of the brothers says, let's get his technicolor dream coat, let's grab it, and let's put blood on it, and let's go back to dad and just say some wild animal tore Joseph to pieces. But then a caravan of traders are coming through, and they're heading to Egypt. And so they devise a plan, let's sell him, and for 20 pieces of silver, they sell their youngest brother. And they sell them to these nomads that are moving towards Egypt and they sell them into slavery. And we have no clue the years that pass. There's no sense at all in the story of Joseph of how many years here, there, and the other in, in the sense of totality. And Joseph is sold into slavery and he's bought by a guy by the name of Potiphar. 
and he's gifted, and God is with him. And so Potiphar just elevates him in his household until Joseph is over all of the household of Potiphar. Then his wife takes a liking to him. And she comes in and tries to do things with him and he gets freaked out and he runs and he leaves his coat behind and she holds up his coat, says that he had just attacked her and he ends up in prison. We have no clue how long Joseph was in prison, none. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the rabbis believe it was years and years. You talk about struggling with God. God, you gave me those two dreams. I shared those two dreams, and I know they're from you. And my brothers tried to kill me. Can you imagine your own brothers, the ones that ought to love you and protect you, try to kill you? And now because he did what was right in the eyes of God, and he ran from Potiphar's wife, now he's in prison. I would assume that he could also be mad at God. God, these were your dreams. You gave them to me. I did what was right in your eyes, and now I'm in prison. And after some time, we don't know how long, there were two other people thrown in prison with Joseph. Genesis chapter 40 tells us there were two of them that he was in prison with, and by now, he'd been promoted by the, over, the guy that was over the prison because God was with him. And in being promoted, he meets these two prisoners from Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh had thrown them in prison. There was a cupbearer to the king. By the way, the cupbearer to the king eats the food and drinks the wine to see if there's poison. So you imagine the king will go, hey, drink this. Any tummy ache? Any headache? Why don't you eat dinner? You watch him. Oh, he curled up and died. Don't eat that meal. Let's get a new cupbearer and different food. That's how it works. So the cupbearer is in there and the, and the pharaoh's baker is in prison with him. And they have dreams. Well, Joseph knows about dreams because God had given him two. And so he listens to the cupbearer's dream and to the baker's dream and he interprets them. And the cupbearer comes in first and he says, hey, I've had this dream. There's these three vines and there's grapes and there's this cup and the birds and I go before Pharaoh and everything, you know, but what does it mean? He says, oh, I got great news. In three days, Pharaoh's going to lift you up and reinstate you as his cupbearer. Well, the baker's sitting in the corner going, wow, this is awesome. I had a dream too, Joseph. Mine was that there were three baskets of bread on my head that I had baked, and these birds came in and started picking the bread out of the basket. I'm so excited, Joseph. What does that mean? Joseph said, well, probably wish you hadn't asked. But in three days, Pharaoh's going to call for you, when he brings you in front of his court, he's going to chop off your head and he's going to impale your body and the birds are going to pick out your eyes and eat your flesh. Oh, Joseph, why did you tell me that? And in three days, it happens exactly like Joseph said. The cupbearer is reinstated. The baker is impaled on a pole and he's beheaded and the birds eat his flesh. What Joseph said to the cupbearer was, hey, buddy, when you get before Pharaoh, put in a great word for me. Do you mind? I can interpret dreams and I helped you. Can you help me? And, da, da, da. and it tells us that the cupbearer totally forgot. Two years later, Pharaoh shows up and he's having these dreams that are plaguing him. One of the dreams he has is seven fat cows and seven emaciated cows and the fat cows eat the emaciated ones. And no one can interpret his dream. And the cupbearer goes, oh my goodness, there's this Hebrew guy that was in prison with me two years earlier. He interprets dreams. Joseph comes before Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, here's what your dream means. Seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. You better start storing up funds. And he does and they store grain for seven years. And then the famine hits. And in Genesis chapter 42... Because famine has destroyed the entire known world. And the Egyptian empire was ready. Now they're taking over every country there is. Because they have wheat. And they have everything that they need to feed the populations. And people are coming in with their gold and everything that they have. And the Egyptian empire is so amazingly powerful. And Joseph is now in second in command to Pharaoh. Well, in Genesis 42... There Joseph is, sitting on the throne right below Pharaoh, and these 
Jewish people show up. And it's his brothers. And his brothers stand before him. And in standing before him, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. But you see, Joseph understands the forgiveness and the currency of the kingdom. And he looks at his brothers, and the Bible says he weeps. He wept. And if you were to read the story, you'll discover that he forgave them. Now listen very carefully. I can just imagine Joseph when he sees them saying this, you guys sold me when I was a teenager. I went from you to prison. I don't even want to talk about what happened in prison, but all of the pain and all of the suffering, look what you guys did to me. And in the natural, I would tell you, their blood would have flowed out of the palace. But not Joseph. Joseph forgave them. You can read about it. And then we pick it up in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It says this. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. Listen to what he said. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving many lives. How amazing. Joseph looks at God and he says to his brothers, you did evil, but God. You did evil to me, but God. I want to say this as clearly as I can. Forgiveness is always dependent upon the person that's been harmed, identifying what was done, but then recognizing God is in the mix. And when I go to forgive, it's not done on my power, but it's done on the power of God. It sounds so familiar to me, this story. I've heard it so many times where people know the harm that someone did to them and it was violent and it was vile and it was evil. But we've got people sitting right here in City Church that have identified the evil that was done to them and they have forgiven and set people free. But they've done it with the strength and the help of God. This story closes with Joseph. You see, his father Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, the brothers get scared. Dad's out of the way. Maybe now that dad's gone, he's going to come gunning for us and he's going to kill us and destroy us. And then Genesis 50, 20. You intended it for harm. But God. I forgive you. And Joseph blessed them. It reminds me of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, 34. Says this, Christ is dying. He's been brutalized and beaten. And on the cross, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the next phrase, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They knew exactly what they were doing. And yet Jesus chose to forgive. Father, forgive them. They have no clue what they're actually doing. But Jesus knows that the currency of the kingdom is forgiveness. At this time, we're going to take communion. If you don't have communion, I'm going to ask those in the back if they would help us. But if you do not have the emblems of communion, if you could just raise your hand as the worship team returns. Just raise your hand. We've got people that will help you. They're going to bring communion to you. But if you don't have it, please raise your hand. Please be patient and keep it raised until people get to you.
but as we prepare our hearts for communion. Forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of God. And as we prepare our hearts for forgiveness, I'm going to ask that you would take just a moment and focus on God's forgiveness to us. As we prepare our hearts for communion, would you be open to God speaking to you about your sin and the forgiveness that's available through Jesus? I know that it's a high hurdle. I know that. But I want to encourage you in this moment to open your heart to Jesus. Would you allow the person of Christ in this moment to forgive you of your sin? Would you allow Jesus in this moment to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? I'm going to ask that the worship team would just play and sing one time through the Nothing But The Blood song. And as they do that, I don't want us to sing. I want us to listen to Rebecca as she sings over us. That your heart would be open to Jesus. Let the economy of God through forgiveness speak to your heart as we prepare together for communion. Rebecca, if you'll sing for us. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon the earth. Speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Oh, Jesus, it's your blood. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me. all stand together. Let's hold the emblems up before the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we hold this bread before you, we thank you for forgiveness through Christ's broken body. Jesus, we acknowledge what you did for us. Forgiveness called you to the cross for our sin. As we hold up this bread, we give you thanks. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he
power to forgive sin. Jesus, thank you for your blood. Let's drink the cup together.
Christ.